You are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie. My co-host Amy is energetic and enjoys my sense of humor for reasons I still don't understand. She amuses me with her lack of moderation as well as her amazing technological savvy. And I'm Amy. My co-host Carrie, on a daily basis, dazzles me with her people skills and her ever sunny, not, disposition. (laughs) Sometimes I drag her out of her house. Basically, we're opposites, but we find common ground on our shared love of books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading with each other and sometimes a special guest or two. We also dabble on other topics like books in the news, recent book-inspired films, our TPR counts, and general things that tease our brains. We're glad you're here. So this week, we talked to the father-daughter team of Marty Olhot and Grace Lai. They have written a travel memoir called Tent for Seven, A Camping Adventure Gone South Out West. This book is based on the true story of their family camping trip to the Canadian Rockies, which went horribly wrong in the 1990s. Marty, his wife Jolene, and their five children flew from Charlotte, North Carolina to the Pacific Northwest and then drove a van to several spots in the majestic Canadian mountains. They camped in their family tent, lovingly referred to as Big Blue. While there, so many things went awry, but most importantly, Jolene was severely injured and had to be taken to a hospital where she spent many days. The old hot family was in disarray, but good Samaritans named the Walshes came to the rescue. This family is genetically predisposed for adventure. You will hear Marty talk about some wild things he has seen and done about his great-grandfather's adventures in the Klondikes. And even though Grace doesn't mention it in the episode, she is also an adventure seeker. She has done dog sleds in Finland and rock climbed in Colorado. Carrie and I are so boring in comparison. Snooze fest. (laughs) (laughs) But first, so I know I told everybody that I would keep them up to date on this, you know, strange happenings in my house. And last week I said, nothing strange has happened. You know, don't worry about it. Okay. One strange thing happened and I promised people that I would keep them apprised of what is going on. So here's the strange thing that happened last week. My husband and I were doing something in the yard. I don't even remember what it was. I think we were like cleaning up some debris from some storms that had come through. I was outside. My husband was inside getting something. And he came out and said, why are you calling me? I said, what do you mean? He said, you're calling me on the phone and I'm just inside. And I said, I don't even have my phone on me. What are you talking about? I'm calling you. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So we went in and my phone is sitting there on the kitchen table. He shows me his phone where my phone had called him a minute ago. I didn't call him from my phone. My phone was inside. Okay, that is weird. I wasn't freaked out on the other stuff because that was outside your house, but this is inside your house. Yes, it is. And you would think, well, maybe I had like butt dialed it or something. But I mean, it's literally sitting on the table. Nobody's around it. It was turned upside down. So like, I don't even think something could have hit it by accident. You know what I mean? So yeah. Okay. Well, now I'm completely panicked that I was at your house on Saturday. Like, I mean, nothing malicious has happened. So but it's still weird. It it is weird. Yeah, Mm. it's weird. Mm. I don't know. All right. Oh, we have some more awards to announce, not our own, but of some of our guests. So last week I was talking about Tracy Clark and Ritu Mukherjee had been nominated for an Edgar Award and Katrina Monroe was on the long list for the Bram Stoker Award. Well, a guest that we had on this summer, Willie Carver Jr., who is a English teacher turned poet has won a Stonewall Award. And the Stonewall Award is uh, for LGBTQ literature. And it's a a huge honking deal for Willie. And he was very, very excited uh, for that. And he is so sweet. I think I made a, a comment on his Instagram. This is so awesome. We're so excited for you. And you know what his response was? He said, thank you for believing in me. 
Oh, isn't that so touching? Like, oh my gosh, he's such a class act. Anyway. Oh my gosh. Yay for Willie Carver Jr. If you have not checked out his poetry collection yet, you should. It's called Gay Poems for Red States. And he has got a really compelling story. If you didn't hear that episode, you should really go back and uh, listen to it. That episode was season nine, episode 187. The, the title of that episode, we pulled from some of his wonderful poetry. We called it Bluegrass Moon and Neckbones. Oh, and Kika Hatsapulu. Well, she was nominated for a Goodreads Award for YA fiction, but I also saw on her Instagram today that she is a finalist for the Sybils Award. It's a award that's given out by children and young adult book bloggers, helping to identify books that will encourage a love of reading in children and teens and ensuring a diverse and equitable appreciation of literature through inclusivity. That is from their vision statement. So anyway... Yay for Kika as well. Hmm. Uh, Okay, so, you know, we talked just a second ago about Willie Carver and the award that he has won for his new poetry collection. You and I have started a little bit of a poetry practice in 2024. At least that's our goal. We both decided we'd like to read more poetry because poetry is something neither one of us do a lot of, but want to try to appreciate more, I guess is the way I would say it. Mm -hmm. Is that how you describe Mm -hmm. it? Yeah. I interviewed somebody for an article that I wrote this fall, and she said that she reads a poem, one poem, once a week on Sundays. And she'll read it a couple times, and she just kind of sits with it for like 10 minutes. And when she told me that, I thought, well, you know, that I think is a really good way to read poetry. Rather than trying to like rush through and finish a volume of poetry and not feel like this pressure, the self-imposed pressure, you know, to try to get through poetry. And so I thought that was, I don't know, kind of a good way. I actually do have a poem that I am going to copy and send you right oh, now. Good. Okay. Because this is actually a poem that, that I've taught before and it's very short, but I've always liked it. So I'll send you that after we get done recording. Okay. Maybe well, you very can good. post it. Yeah. So what we decided to do was each week we will read a poem or two. And if we find one that we like, we will then send it to the other one. Part of the idea was to talk about the poems, although we haven't really. (laughs) We haven't had time to do that. (laughs) We haven't had time to do that yet. But I'm hoping that someday soon you and I can go to lunch or something and, and talk about our poems. I sent her one last week that was from a local author, Ellen Burkett Morris, who is a short story writer, novelist, and poet. She had posted one on her personal Facebook page that I thought was very nice, and I sent that to Carrie. Where I have gotten some of these poems is through the poets.org website. So they have a service that's called Poem a Day, and if you sign up for it, they will send you a poem every day in your email and they'll have the poem that you can read. They also will have a, a little link where, you know, you can press the little button and someone will read the poem out loud. If the poet is still alive, it's usually the poet reading their own poem. If the poet is deceased, then it's somebody else reading their poem and it'll give you a little history of the poet and uh, maybe even a little bit about the poem. So this one I sent you last week, the poet kind of explained what he was thinking while he was writing it. So if that's something that sounds interesting, go to poets.org and sign up for their poem a day email. Okay. And one last bookkeeping thing to say is that uh, I will be doing an Instagram live on February 5th, I believe that's a Monday, with Jennifer Calogeras from the podcast Books Are My People. We get together once a month. We do an Insta Live and we talk about the one book that was our favorite book of the previous month. So for this one in February, I will be talking about my favorite book of January and so will she. So you can join us live for that or you you can't get it on our Facebook. But if you're on Instagram, you can just go back through uh, my feed or Jennifer Calieris's feed, and you can you can see that. So anyway, cool. Me. Well, hey, since we're talking about Jennifer, we have to say that a couple weeks ago I talked about, or maybe it was just last week. Who remembers? I talked about the dangers of floating an idea around Amy, 
this. So I have, have learned this. And Jennifer Calieras has also learned that you don't float an idea around Amy because Amy is going to take that idea and run with it. So we, you and I in April are going to be flying. We have booked our tickets. The plan is we're going to fly out to Los Angeles for the LA Times Festival of Books. And we're not like moving in with Jennifer, but she's suggested that we have dinner. And you're like, do you think that she's maybe a little overwhelmed that we're coming out there? I'm like, well, she's learned her lesson now. <laughs> well, okay. Here's the backstory. Back Last year, she sent us a message and said, hey, you all should come out for the LA Festival of Books. That was her first mistake. Yeah, this was last spring. And I'm like, oh, that would be really fun. Now, you immediately said, I cannot do it. Yeah, my schedule is not as flexible as yours. That's true. Anyway, so you're like, nah, I can't do that. But maybe if you wanted to do next year, I could. So you and I had sort of set this long-term goal that we would go in 2024. That I, in the course of the rest of 2023, had sort of forgotten about. You know, because I went to Scotland and then school started and, you know, got busy. And so this idea, this notion had completely fallen off my radar, but not your radar. No, you know, I'm an ideas person, even other people's ideas. And so, I mean, I pretty much talked all year. I had said to Jennifer, I think we're going to be able to come out next year. And I'd said to you, you know, check your schedule, make sure you can still go to LA. And so we have booked our tickets. We found really good airfare and we just booked our accommodations and we are ready to roll. But I did send Jennifer a a message and I said, hey, I hope that you're still okay with us coming. We've booked everything. Now that we've locked in and paid money for stuff, are you sure this is okay? Are you sure you don't mind us descending on your home? And well, we are not staying with her. No, We're no, staying no. nearby. And so, you know, she doesn't have to have us in her space. She said, no, why would I say that? She was so excited. Of course, what is she really going to say when I asked that? You know, honestly. <laughs> she's like, well, she's coming. I guess yeah. I better just roll with it. <laughs> so, you know, I guess this is a lesson to everybody else. Don't suggest a good idea to anything. Or... Don't, su- don't suggest a good idea, a bad idea, a mediocre idea, no ideas. <laughs> because Amy is almost certainly going to make you see that, you know, don't have a notion. Or okay. ocean, just don't let it come out of your mouth. Well, what can I say? I like I like making friends. I like meeting people. I like traveling. But, you know, part of the reason that you said yes, not only because we're going to a book festival, those are fun. We're getting to meet Jennifer, but neither one of us have been to LA before. So, That's and true. you love to travel. And so I do love a, to travel. This is a chance to see LA. So I do love to travel. There you go. So. Please don't be a, don't be afraid of me, people. I'm not I'm not the <laughs> Do I sound like a stalker? Maybe I sound like a stalker. I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. You're a very nice stalker. Uh, Yeah. You know. uh, As far as stalkers go, I'm not too shabby. stalkers go, you know, you're very nice. You're very personable. Um, (laughs) You know. So before we talk to Marty and Grace, I did want to mention that our last segment this week is going to be a new one that we've never done before, where I give a fellow book lover, a book suggestion based on a request that they sent us. I had a lot of fun doing this. So I hope more people will send me, will send me requests. Yeah. So Amy, I'm hoping that when you and I head out to LA, I hope that things do not go awry. Oh dear Lord. If they go like this, we want them to go in any way like they did for Marty and Grace and their family which they describe in their book, Tent for Seven. I love talking to them. Are you, are you ready to talk to Marty and Grace? I am. All right, let's do it. We're joined today by a father-daughter duo. We're so thrilled that they're here. We've got Marty Oldhout <laughs> and Grace Lye. They have collaborated to create a book that Amy and I read, and it was both you know a book that's it's definitely funny but it also makes you gasp a little bit we'll talk about the book it is called 
Tent for Seven, A Camping Adventure Gone South Out West. And it was published in August of 2023. Marty and Grace, we're really glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you. We're glad to be be here. here. So I think most people have some sort of horror story about traveling with their family, you know, whether it be like a cross-country trip in the uh, station wagon or what have you. But your book takes it to like a whole new level as far as cringy family trips. So we're excited to hear about it in person as well. I enjoyed reading about this incredible adventure or misadventure. And so it's a story of both Marty's longtime love of camping and the great outdoors, going back all the way to like high school and college days and about taking your family to the Canadian Rockies in the 1990s. You know, that's been a while. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to share the story beyond just your family members? Was there a a specific impetus? We took this trip to the Canadian Rockies in 1994, and it was a, as you mentioned, everything that had not gone wrong in the previous 10 years of our camping was all stored up and went wrong on this trip. And uh, (laughs) some of it, it was humorous kind of stuff that goes wrong, you know, like running out of lantern oil and little bear encounters. But then we had a fairly serious one, two or three actually, (laughs) before it was over. To the point that when we finally returned uh, home to Charlotte, pretty much everybody in the family was in various stages of either physical therapy or mental therapy to recover from the trip, <laughs> including myself. I went for a couple of weeks and wasn't able to sleep at night just thinking about kind of what I'd put everybody through. A couple of friends had said, hey, man, I heard about your trip. You ought to write a book. And I don't think they really meant that. But one night, about three in the morning, I thought, well, maybe that'll help. Maybe I should start writing it down just as therapy. And that really is how the transcription began from about midnight till three o'clock when I couldn't go to sleep about every other night. I just pulled out my laptop, which, of course, in 1994 was like the size of a suitcase. But (laughs) I, I would start typing away. Uh, and I just sort of started at the beginning and, and I was just writing it down really, I guess, as a confession, you know, to kind of get it off my chest. I, it went for about six months before I finally got to the end. Somewhere along the way, I decided to kind of make it a little more of a book than just bullet form. So it became kind of a narrative. But when I was finished, I really did debate. I'm going, now what am I going to do with this? This was strictly meant to be therapeutic. It's worked to a degree anyway. And then I, I really wrestled with, do I put this in a fire someplace and burn it and watch <laughs> it go up and smoke and never think about it again? And I guess luckily I decided, uh, I thought, well, maybe grandkids, if there will ever be such a thing, maybe they'd like to read this. You know, I had a great grandfather that, that went to the Klondike in the Yukon for a gold rush and he was gone for a year and a half. And I would have loved to have read a little bit of a journal that he never kept. <laughs> so that inspired me to throw the uh, the book up on the shelf and leave it there where it sat for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And then, uh, Grace, you kind of took over then. Yes, I did. So uh, at the time, I knew that my dad was writing this stuff down, but I had zero interest in it. I was 14 years old and was you know consumed with my own personal problems that a 14-year-old girl has and not what my dad was up to. And so it wasn't until I think I was about 28 when I remembered that he had written the story. And so I went back and I found it and I thought, you know, this is really entertaining. And if I just cleaned it up a bit, I could make this into a really good book. And at that point in my life, I really enjoyed writing and I wanted to do more writing And so it's kind of interesting because I don't think it was specifically that trip that made me want to write a book. It was more, I want to write a book and here's all this really great content that I could turn into a book. And so I spent the next 10 years on and off working on it, rewriting it, adding stuff, taking stuff out, moving stuff around. And then I finally got it to where I thought, you know, this is as good as I can get it. And so I then started submitting it to publishers. And once we had a publisher, that's kind of when the collaboration between the two of us started. Because initially, you know, he wrote it all on his own. I rewrote the whole thing on my own. And then once we signed with a publisher, that's when the two of us actually started working together. 
to write the book. Since you were wanting to write a book anyway, did you ever think about fictionalizing it as opposed to doing a a travel memoir style? No. And it's kind of interesting. I have pretty much always only been drawn to nonfiction. I love memoirs. I love true stories, biographies, autobiographies. And so it is kind of funny because I had always wanted to write and it's like, well, why didn't I just create a story myself? But I've discovered that I am really good at telling stories that have already happened and not creating stories. I wanted to tell the true version of it. Well, honestly, you know, this true story is stranger than fiction, right? So you didn't need to do that. I was just curious if that had ever crossed your mind. Well, I'm wondering, because the way you have the book laid out, you know, different chapters focus on different parts of the experience. Most of the chapters are about the family trip in the 90s, but then it's interspersed with Marty's experiences from his younger days. So, you know, Marty, you talked about how you were writing as therapy. So at what point did the stories from your younger days work themselves in? (laughs) Being 30 years ago, I have to (laughs) work hard to remember that far back. But most of those stories came about as I would write something from the 1994 trip you know, I'd say, oh, and this little adventure here, this really reminds me of something that happened when we were out, you know, climbing Long's Peak or out in Death Valley. And I I put them in place for the most part, right when I was writing the original manuscript. In fact, <laughs> as, as part of the editing process with uh, Sandra Jonas, our publisher, we, we probably took about half of them out of the book because there were so many. So we, those will go into our next book, I think. <laughs> we'll put those all together. I will add that, and I have a confession that I don't know if I should make or not, but I am actually not a very big fan of flashbacks in books. I kind of tend to find them really distracting, and I like to stay in the main story and not jump around. But when I read his original manuscript, what really captivated me were the flashbacks because I don't, I guess, well, partly you you never think of your father as you know, anything but your dad. You don't picture him in his 20s at a nudist beach. Why would you want to picture that? So, um, but it, it was the flashbacks that I re- that really captured me and thought, I couldn't believe he did this stuff. And so I really felt like they needed to be a part of the book. It, like he said, we did have to take some out. They just didn't fit in. But we did work very hard to make the transitions into and out of the flashbacks relevant. And we did spend a lot of time making them fit into the broader story. Well, I I have to say, Marty, from what you mentioned about your grandfather and going to the Klondike and and the Gold Rush, I'm starting to see that this adventurous spirit of yours is a genetic component of you. It's not just, you know, a one-off. It seems like this is part of who you are and, and who your family is. So... I guess I've just always been that way. I never thought about being that way. <laughs> but when I, I was in a motorcycle wreck when I was a freshman in college, a, a fairly high-speed motorcycle wreck, and I came out almost unscathed, and I thought, wow, it could have been over. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I haven't done anything. Uh, we had some relatives in Ireland, and I called them and said, can I come over for the rest of the summer? Because I, I should be dead right now. <laughs> <laughs> And I went over and I spent two months roaming around Europe. And I think that's part of what really kind of got me realizing you can go do this stuff. You just got to go do it. And then that led to the Wild West trip, which is one of the major flashbacks in in the book. And then it was just out of control after that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you kind of answered our next question that we were going to ask, you know, whether this was a a one-off experience or fits your personality, this adventurous spirit. You know, in the book, you talk about that you've jumped out of airplanes. It's hard for me to even imagine how you did this water skiing, standing on a chair, balanced on a disc. You know, uh, and and you mentioned as early as page four, you say at the start of the book, I'm not always the most practical guy to live with. So I think that just this conversation is sort of painting a picture for listeners as to what they might expect from the book, which, you know, when I was reading it, I am not in general a fan of, of schadenfreude, but you know, reading your memoir, I had my mouth hanging open quite a bit. So 
it was a, a fun way to spend a few hours for sure. <laughs> I guess we tend to be a little on the humorous side. So as we wrote the whole thing, we, we didn't inject humor. It just sort of flowed into the narrative because so much of it was funny. In fact, we really did have to kind of tone a little bit of the humor down in some of the more serious segments. And, and uh, if Sandra helped us there again, she's going, you know, you really can't be too funny when you're <laughs> on the way to the hospital. There's, you know, right. so we, we, <laughs> we need to kind of beat it up and get a little more of a sense of urgency and we'll hold jokes till everybody's better. <laughs> right. Well, I have to admit when you said that you wrote this initially as sort of therapy for yourself because, you know, you were having sleepless nights, then I felt a little guilty about thinking that this book reads a little bit like a Chevy Chase National Lampoon vacation movie. But now <laughs> but now that you say that you all were laughing too, then it makes me feel a little better. So, yeah. you know, now that you have some distance from it, you have some humor about it. Yeah. Yeah. It it really did. It just kind of flowed very, very naturally. But I, I will say this. It, it flowed naturally to write the story. What uh, I still today really struggle with is being able to talk much about it. In fact, if you hear some short time lapses here, sometimes I got to stop and take a deep breath. Like right now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He's breaking down over here again. Yeah. <laughs> I will say the very first speaking event that we did was in front of maybe 60 people and we were telling the story in depth. And he gets to the part where, you know, my mom gets very seriously injured and he's he makes it into one like one sentence into it and then I look over and he's standing there crying and I'm like, mm. "Oh god, I have to like take over, but you can't start when your dad's crying, you can't stand there and talk so then I start crying hysterically <laughs> it is hard to talk about that incident that happens to my mom because it was it was bad yeah <laughs> so, yeah so and that's it, definitely conveyed you know in the book I, and, and we should say she's she's okay now yeah she's she's, she's, she's okay she's, it's okay <laughs> yeah she makes it she makes it but it is it's funny because it's hard to talk about it but for some reason it neither one of us had trouble writing about it I don't know why that was for my dad, but I know for me, anytime that I kind of thought too much about it and I, I kind of got a little emotional, I would just sort of switch my mindset and think, okay, this is just content. Like, how do you make this content really emotionally pull at people's heartstrings? Or I just kind of thought of it as content and not something that actually happened to my mom. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I want to ask about, and one of the things I thought that was really cool about the book was that it reminded me so much of how life was travel-wise before September 11th mm -hmm. and the current state of trying to pack ourselves and all of our luggage onto a plane. I remember going to the UK in 93 and there were enough open seats that we could lie down all, almost create a bed for ourselves of empty mm -hmm. seats. And that would never happen now. So talk to us a little bit about how much stuff you took on the airplane to actually make camping possible in the Canadian Rockies. Because I just found this part fascinating. There was so much stuff stuffed into the back of the van that it was one of those situations where you did not want to grab anything. Because if you grabbed one thing, you know, the entire mountain of stuff was just going to come flying out of the back of the van. It was just stuffed in there. So having the five kids all under 15 and four of them being girls, the, you, know, you had to take a lot of stuff along. And a lot of it was just stuff for them to play with, backpacks and fanny packs and, and games. And thank goodness Silly Putty was one of those because that came in <laughs> handy for <laughs> one of our little episodes. And, and Jolene really gets all the credit for, you know, we did camp in the Blue Ridge Parkway here along the parkway for a few years, getting our practice in. And, and she was a master planner and packer, and she deserves all the credit for getting that stuff at the airport and in the rental car and out each time that we would camp. Um, well, I have to ask this. Why did you take your own firewood? Well, I'm a little embarrassed about this, but... <laughs> What we had learned in our previous camping trips, and we had gone out to Colorado on one of our trips, we, we learned that it's really nice to have a lot of firewood. The kids love to have the big infernos at night and burn their marshmallows to a crisp. So the, the, the uh, evening fireplace uh, events were a big deal. So, And sometimes in the, in the campsites, sometimes you could get wood and sometimes you couldn't. 
Uh, and sometimes it was like a dollar a stick. So <laughs> you could get it, but it'd be a hundred dollar fire. So gotcha. Hurricane Hugo had come through uh, Charlotte a couple years early. So there was a lot of firewood laying around in our yard. <laughs> and we thought, we got all this firewood here. We got a couple extra pieces of baggage that we can take. And you read the story there. I went out in the middle of the night and chopped a couple of them up and got us to 21 boxes of luggage. And <laughs> of course, then we get to Canada and you find out that they provide you all the firewood you want for free. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all for naught. <laughs> I think one of the most important things that Carrie and I took from this story was the generosity of strangers and that, you know, people are by and large, uh, good to each other. So were there other lessons that you hope that this this memoir would provide readers? Yes. I th- <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple things. I think the generosity of strangers was a huge one f- for me. What the Walshes did, I still think is pretty unbelievable, their act of kindness. And we, I mean, we really were complete strangers to them. They'd known us for th- two, three days just being in the hospital. And I think a key lesson is, you know, to offer help to if when you see people who need help to help them. And then I think for us specifically, you know, for my dad, and he could probably speak a little more to it, is to accept help. He was so reluctant to accept their offer of help. And, you know, when, when the dentist shows up when we need him, he was trying to go around him. And I think, you know, I think too, like, you never know what people are going through on the outside people. You know, people look like they're doing all right, but everybody has something they're struggling with or, you know, something that's happened to them in their past. So really just, you know, to be kind to other people and to help other people when you can and then to accept that help or even ask for help when you need it. I think people are a lot more willing to help other people. So that's, I think, a Mm -hmm. lesson, you know, and that I guess also, too, that just... Generally, people are good. They just don't always have the opportunity to show that side of themselves. As I read the book, I thought, wow, I felt a little bad because when the doctors showed up, I was questioning what the heck they were doing there. And <laughs> and, and when we, the dentist shows up, I'm thinking, I, I literally was trying to get around him. And even when the Walshes were offering help, I uh, it wasn't until uh, Lauren looked at me and said, well, if we needed this help, wouldn't you be giving us a hand? And I'm going, well, I, I certainly would when Jolene made me do it. <laughs> and that really was a lesson, I think one of the major lessons we took, as well as just the fortuitousness of the string of help we got. It's like somebody's looking out for us someplace, maybe. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Well, I think it definitely, you know, even reading your book, it made you think, man, you know, sometimes we don't pay attention to things and sometimes the stars align and we do pay attention and it seems like, you know, this is all too coincidental, but you know, maybe it's not. I I thought that was really heartwarming in that way. And, And I am not like a sentimental person, but I love that about your book. One of our reviewers was a little disgruntled and he, his review said, uh, I read about 100 pages of this book and I had to put it down because it's just too ridiculous. There's no way all this could possibly happen. And I, I just had to kind of think, he should have kept reading. If, if, <laughs> <laughs> he, he read the easy part of the book. <laughs> How did travel change for your family after this Canadian Rockies trip? Well, you know, in a sense it didn't, but you're not going to believe this. We did go back out. We revisited the scene of the crime two years later. Oh, wow. As part of our therapy session, uh, the Walshes invited us back out as a, for a makeup session. Uh, <laughs> and they had, they had a place up in the mountains there in the, Rock, in the Canadian Rockies. So we, we all went back out and we went to visit the hospital in Golden. And that that was the end of our retracing our steps. That It was... Uh, it was tough to go there. so But then we continued the camping trip for two weeks, and we uh, went back to Colorado two years later. But we were transitioning to condos, <laughs> <laughs> mountain homes and condos. And then we did go to Alaska two years later, uh, and we got an RV. But we did take Big Blue with us, so we, people could sleep in Big Blue if they wanted. And then since then, we've kind of reverted to the hotels and motels. <laughs> <laughs> Big and bees. <laughs> well, and even in Alaska, not all of us didn't go. Julie, who's the oldest, who's the one who's the most traumatized from this trip, she didn't go. I actually didn't go because I was 
I spent that summer working on a dude ranch out in Colorado, or I would have loved to have gone to Alaska and I still haven't been, but that trip was kind of the end of our, I mean, it really was kind of the end of our big trips. We did probably take some local trips, I think, to Sliding Rock for several years afterwards, but even those kind of fizzled out and sort of fell apart towards the end. And well, I wouldn't say they fizzled, but you, you guys just... <laughs> they fizzled. <laughs> well, and some of that, some of that wasn't because of the events that happened. It was just, you know, as the you had teenagers, they were getting older, they were sort of creating their own lives at that point. I, I think a big part of it, honestly, was my mom, Jolene, had had enough at that point, and and she was like, "That's it. We're not doing it anymore." She was done accommodating everybody's sliding down the rocks and in the rivers. She had reached her threshold. <laughs> I can feel that. I can yeah. feel that. <laughs> so, were either one of you fans of travel writing before you wrote this book? I I wouldn't say I was a huge fan of travel writing specifically, but I definitely was a huge fan of adventure stories. Mm-hmm. And Bill Bryson is my favorite author. I love yeah. him. I love all his books. We love um, him too. Yeah. He's great. I love his sense of humor. And I think the inspiration that I drew from him was his ability to entertain and educate at the same time. I think that's a real skill. And that's kind of why I was motivated to put in our book, there's little tidbits about the names of the mountains or certain people that I just thought were really interesting. And so I probably am the primary person who put those little educational facts in the book. So I would say that's kind of where the inspiration came from. And I, of course, I just love his sense of humor. He's my favorite author. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. we're big fans too. uh, I was similar with the reading too. I I didn't realize that I was reading travel books, but when I thought about this, I'm going, well, you know, I, I love the book about Magellan's circling the earth and Shackleton's trip to the South Pole and Lewis and Clark and and it, they are kind of travel books. I didn't think of them that way. Into Thin Air was great. And most of them, I guess the real attachment would be I could identify with what they were doing. And it maybe in a very, very small way, you know, like Into the Thin Air, we'd been in some mountain blizzards. Nothing like being on Everest, but enough to really appreciate it. So uh, I did read Bryson's uh, Walk in the Woods, which uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I did not serve as my model because he wrote that after we wrote our book. So actually, it might have been a role reversal there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my favorite part of that book is where Bryson describes how he would react if a bear came into his camp. Oh, yeah. And I mean, every time I read that, my husband wants to toss me out of the bedroom because I'm laughing so hard. But I have to say... The difference is that in your book, Marty, when you were a younger guy, you did have a bear and it wasn't an accident. And so I'll I'll just stop there and encourage other readers to check out Tent for Seven so that they can read the story of the bear that came to your campsite when you were with your friends camping, <laughs> because that was bananas. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's a true story. <laughs> it all happened. <laughs> So I want to know how you two work together as a team on this. I can imagine me trying to do something with my dad like this, and it would be painful. Did you fall into the typical parent-child dynamics, or how did Um, that work? Well, you know, actually, kind of a funny story. It was interesting. When I was shopping the manuscript around to different publishers, you know, at that point, I had kind of rewritten the whole thing and was on my own. And I remember some of the publishers... Or agents would write back and say, does your dad know that you've done this? Is he still alive? (laughs) Because I was billing it as, you know, I was the author, but it's all told from the perspective of a 43-year-old man at the time. So it wasn't until we signed with Sandra and then the three of us really started to work together. But, you know, I would say it was almost kind of a role reversal in that I was spearheading the project. And then my dad came on board and, you know, un- unfortunately, I guess we worked so well together that we don't have any good stories of, <laughs> you know, where we had major differences or we never had a serious argument about anything. We, we evolved to where we had a pretty nice little system uh, when we had a disagreement about something. Since there was three of us, we, we 
pretty much settle things with a vote. <laughs> and we, mm. we and you always of, have a tiebreaker. Wait, because we That's had a tiebreaker. Right. Yes. It's, uh, and that worked pretty well, unless somebody really went off their rocker and yeah. de- demanded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which we did. There was a couple things that some people wanted out. And I and I was like, you were, you will not take that out. You know, a sentence. Or, you know, I'm like, you will not take that sentence out. I love that sentence. But <laughs> it doesn't make for a good story. But the whole process was really pretty smooth. And we all got along. And I think each one of us brought something to the table that the others didn't. And I think that is why it works so well. We just each brought something that the other person didn't have and it just and what we needed to make the book what it is. So I think we were extremely lucky that we all ended up together. <laughs> yeah, talking. I mean, you still, know, still talking. <laughs> yes. Well, we want to close this part of our chat with you by asking this question of Marty. So, Marty, you you've done a lot of traveling. You've traveled to 44 countries, all 50 states. Do you have a wildest travel experience that isn't in this book, not in from this particular trip that you can share with us? Wow. There are, <laughs> there's a bunch of them. I bet. Uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, well, I, I tell you one that's really out of the context of the story, uh, something completely different. When I, I was in China off and on for five or six years teaching classes and, and working with some college students. Uh, on one of the trips, I was there for uh, two weeks of class, and it was like about 2009, 2010, and two-week gig. And, and I started out by going, well, I had been to, had to go to Mexico City and then to India and then to China. So I was on a road for about six or seven weeks. On one of the last days, there was a break in the class, and and I, you know, I was pretty worn out. One of the, my guide or the guy was looking after me, he said, hey, we got the afternoon off. Would you like to go see a um, public execution? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought, he was, I thought he was kidding. I thought that was uh, something else. So I said, well, sure. <laughs> and then I said, by the way, what do they do at these? <laughs> he goes, well, it's a public execution. <laughs> so I, so I, I said, okay, <laughs> I don't think I can do this. <laughs> so I did go back over and I said, so this is an execution. And he, he looks at me like, what's wrong with you? Like, what don't yeah. you understand? I said, well, I'll tell you what, I think I, I got something else I have to do this afternoon. <laughs> so I declined. And then he said, well, I'll tell you what, if you can't do that, we have a meeting this evening, project management oriented meeting. Would you like to go to that? And I said, sure. I, you know, I felt like I needed to do that. Now I didn't want to turn this guy down again. So I, I go to this meeting in the evening and a bunch of Chinese nationals come in dressed up in suits and they start presenting plans to build nuclear power plants. <gasps> and after, I, so I'm watching this, I totally dumbfounded and it goes off about an hour and it would take a little break and I get my, my little guide again and I'm going, what's going on? I don't know a thing about nuclear power. He goes, well... These guys, what they want you to do, they want you to sign off on these plans because you're a project management certified from the United States. I said, yeah, but I don't know a darn thing about any of this. He goes, they don't care. They're looking for a signature. Oh, and my I, God. And I, you know, I said, man, you know, I, it's late. I got to go. I, can, I said, can I leave or are they going to hurt me if I try to leave? <laughs> he goes, well, if you leave right now, you'll be okay. So... That's you know, maybe not the wildest thing that's ever happened, but that I, to this day I can remember how I felt trying to get out of that room at about nine thirty. Oh my at night. gosh! One of my wild well, trips. Oh my goodness! Well, I thoroughly enjoyed Tent for Seven, and I am really looking forward to any future books that you all collaborate on because <laughs> you've had a wild, wild life. So let's go ahead. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Marty Olhot and Grace Lai, and they are the father-daughter team behind the book Tent for Seven, A Camping Adventure Gone South Out West. And of course, I have Carrie here with me. Carrie, what have you been reading? So I 
recently finished, well, not too long ago. Uh, It's a short book. So the reason I'm talking about this one is, you know, I love to squeeze in some shorter books. And this is one that if somebody is interested in doing that, it's 201 pages. It clocks in at about four hours as an audiobook. I listened to the audiobook version and it is narrated by Dion Graham. I guess I should tell you the name of the book. I'm I'm going I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself. So the book is called Tread of Angels by Rebecca Roanhorse. So this is the second Roanhorse book that I have read. And I was pleasantly surprised because it is narrated by Dion Graham, and I love his voice. He also narrated a book that I listened to called The Scent of Burnt Flowers by Blitz Bazawule. And I talked about that book on the show at the end of season eight. But let me tell you about Tread of Angels. So this novel is the story of two sisters, Celeste and Mariel, and they live in a town called Goetia, Colorado. So Mariel is accused of murdering a virtue. That's a group of people who are the descendants of angels. Celeste and Mariel are members of the fallen, descendants of demon kind. So Angels come and arrest Marielle and throw her in prison for this murder. And Celeste is tasked with standing up for her sister in the angel's court of law in the role of, it's called, Advocatus Diaboli, which puts her in treacherous territory because the angels, you know, we, we think of angels as being the good guys. But in this case, when any being has too much power, they can become a little corrupt. And so that's sort of what Celeste begins to discover. So Marielle's guilt or innocence tests Celeste's bonds with her sister. Also complicating Celeste's quest is that she has had a past love affair with Abraxas, who is a demon. So this is a short book. It talks about virtue and vice. It has the sister dynamic. It has the romance tangent to it, but it poses a number of deeper questions, such as how much do you or should you sacrifice for those you love? And can we ever believe in the total goodness or badness of people? So it's called Tread of Angels by Rebecca Roanhorse. Okay, so I have a question. She is a Native American author. You didn't mention that. Is it involved in that at all? No, no, no. it is not. Okay. Nope. Okay. You know, it doesn't mention indigenous, but but it does kind of play with that idea, right, about people who are marginalized. So in the story, the people who are marginalized are the fallen. Okay. So it, it sort of plays with that idea, but but not in a specifically uh, indigenous way. Okay. So, all right. Uh, who wants to go first, Marty or Grace? I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> I'm doing something that I've only done maybe twice ever, and that is I'm actually rereading a Bill Bryson book, and it's the short history of nearly everything. And it's not really that short. It's <laughs> I don't know how long the book is, but it's a pretty long book. I'm rereading it because it's such an amazing book, and it's kind of for dummies. It goes everywhere from the uh, the universe to the quarks inside of an atom. It talks about the personal life of the scientists and all their quirks and some of their dark sides and and their inventions and discoveries. It goes from the ancient Greeks and Egyptians um, up to 2005, which is when I think it was written. So it covers all the science involved, uh, all the history, and it's done with Bill Bryson's humor, which is it's hard to imagine a blend of <laughs> science and humor. But he talks about some of the funny stuff and unbelievable stuff that some of these scientists have done. And it, it, it made it just so believable and real. All of a sudden, these guys that you think of as these crazy scientists, you, you can't really talk to them. And you realize they're just really real people and did dumb things. And a lot that's so funny. One of the things that really hit me when I read this book, he talked about superbugs. Uh, and how you could catch it, you could be fine on Sunday and catch a superbug on Monday and be gone, you know, on Tuesday or Wednesday. And, and I, I must have read this book in 2009 because that's when I took one of my trips to China and I caught one of those superbugs. <gasps> oh my gosh. And uh, I was going through that cycle. I was going through catching it, but it hit, it hit on Friday and on 
uh, Saturday, they were landing my plane home to D.C. in Alaska and running me off to the hospital where they told me I probably wouldn't have made it to D.C. And (laughs) while I'm laying in my hospital bed, I'm thinking, oh, this must be one of those bugs that Bill was was right about. (laughs) I thought he was making all that up, but I guess... (laughs) I think you need to stay away from China. (laughs) I'm not allowed to go back. Uh, well, I will say book. I have read I've read several of Bill Bryson's books, but that is one that I have never read. And partly it's because of how thick it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, it, it is so thick. There's so much in it. And it's so good. That's why I'm rereading it. And, it, you know, <laughs> I got a short memory. So most of it feels new to me now the second time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Grace, what have you been reading? Yes. So the book that I wanted to mention is In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. And I mention it because I think it's, aside from Into Thin Air by John Krakauer, I think In uh, In Harm's Way is probably one of the few books that I literally could not put down. I mean, I stayed up, I think I finished it in one day, or maybe it was three o'clock in the morning by the time I finally finished, but I, I could not put it down. It's a World War II story about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, uh, which was torpedoed in the South Pacific by a Japanese submarine. And it's the story of what happens afterwards. And the survivors are out in the ocean. And it details the sharks that are coming. I mean, a lot of detail about the sharks. And then what happens to the captain afterwards gets court-martialed. And they bring in a Japanese captain to testify against the U.S. captain of the ship. And uh, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. It was one of the few books that I've read where my mouth was hanging open the entire time. I mean, every page, I just got more and more shocking. For some reason, I don't know why, but I used to read like a lot of World War II books. And it was one of the few World War II books that I thought really did not sort of glamorize the war. There was no sort of romantic twist to it as so many World War II books are. I think they are. They're glamorized and romanticized. And this one I thought was just a very real account of what happened to these men. And it's just, it's shocking, horrifying, and I could not put it down. So, I mean, I recommend that book to anybody. All right. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, at the end of last season, I talked about a TV show that I have been watching that's based on a book, which is called Slow Horses. It's on Apple Plus, and they're based on spy thrillers by an author named Mick Heron. And there's three seasons, uh, and I'm a little obsessed with it. I'm a little <laughs> obsessed with the show. And I saw where there was a collection of, no- of novellas that was written by Mick Heron that's in the same universe as The Slow Horses. The Slow Horses uh, was the first book in this series about a group of spies who worked for MI5 in Britain, uh, but they're sort of screw-ups. And so they get sent to this particular uh, department of MI5 that's for screw-ups, basically, where they're Mm -hmm. just doing like super tedious things. And so the guy who heads this department up is named Lamb. His last name is Lamb. His first name is escaping me at the moment. But anyway, he is actually like one of the best spies that they've ever had. And he chooses to head up this department of basically loser spies. (laughs) And so that's the basis of the series. But I, because I'm kind of obsessed with the series right now, and I'm sad that I've got no more to watch. I saw that this book, it's called Standing by the Wall. uh, And it is a group of five novellas that are based in that same world of slow horses. And so I'm about halfway through this book. There's five novellas in there. I've read two. And they're all kind of linked. So it's not like they're novellas that aren't related at all. It's sort of one story, but done in five novellas, which I'm not exactly sure why he did it that way. But each one sort of ends on a cliffhanger, just as if you were watching the show, you know, and you were watching an episode and it kind of ends on a cliffhanger. So it feels a little bit like watching an extra season of that show. But This one involves one of MI5's handlers. Spy handler is somebody who is sort of the go-between between between the spy and MI5. And he sort of gets 
mixed up with this beautiful young female spy who's a German double and then triple agent. And Germany, you know, it's in today's world. So Germany is an ally. They're a friendly country and we're spying on them and they're sort of spying on us. But things then get a little bit unfriendly. I'm really enjoying it. It makes me feel like I'm, you know, watching another season of Slow Horses. Uh, But I will say that I don't know that I would recommend reading this if you haven't read any of the Slow Horses books or if you haven't seen the show. But if you've seen the show, you know all you need need to know in order to to read it and enjoy these stories about people in the uh, MI5. So again, the name of that book is Standing by the Wall, novellas by Mick Heron. All right. Well, we want to thank our guest again, Marty Ohat. Marty and Grace Lai, his daughter, who collaborated on the book Tent for Seven, A Camping Adventure Gone South Out West. Thanks so much again for being our guest. We've enjoyed speaking with you both. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Before we take a break, let's hear about one more awesome book from a fellow book lover about their five-star read. My name's Shelley, and I live in the Netherlands. My most recent five-star book is a novel called The Future by Naomi Alderman. This is a terrific story. The plot couldn't be any more relevant. The influence of social media, the spread of misinformation, artificial intelligence, it's all in the book, wrapped up in a gripping plot that involves the three richest people in the world and the end of civilization. This novel had very intelligent, powerful female main characters. It had a lot of insights on uh, social media, on current society, even on the Old Testament story of Lot. When you add to this mix some cutting-edge robots, the end of the world, you have a great story. It's Naomi Alderman's The Future. You can hear more about my book reviews at ShellyAnderson4127 on Instagram. So we're back, and I am going to be handing out a book recommendation to a listener who sent me a request. So there was a listener in Idaho who wanted a book, a new book to read that would be a five-star read for her. And so she gave me a list of books that she had read and loved. Here are some of the books. The Women by Kristen Hanna, Resurrection Walk by Michael Conley, who she's read all in that series. Everyone Brave is Forgiven by Chris Cleave. The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown. She said she read that one two times. Beach Music by Pat Conroy. She also said that her all-time favorite book that she's read at least three times is Lonesome Dove. Okay, so Lonesome Dove is one of my personal favorites. So again, this one is historical fiction. It's a broad, sweeping book. Uh, Let's see. So she's looking for an incredible book that she can't put down that will stick with her for a long time. So this feels like a lot of pressure. You think so? I assume that this (laughs) listener is not going to ever contact. If they don't like it, they're probably not going to tell me. I am just doing my best due diligence here. It still feels like pressure to me. To me, it feels like this puzzle. So what I did was try to figure out, like, what do some of these books have in common? Mm -hmm. So The Women and Everyone Brave is Forgiven uh, are both uh, historical fiction novels set, you know, around World War II. The Boys in the Boat is set before World War II. And Beach Music is not necessarily historical fiction, but these are all sort of big sweeping novels, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I thought, okay, what could I find that's sort of in that world that maybe isn't World War II and maybe is something that she hasn't heard of or read before? Do we need a drum roll? So here's what I went with. So the theme I see in these books is that many of them are historical. They have a big sweeping storyline. I especially kind of picked up on The Lonesome Dove because I love that book so much myself. So the book that I'm going with is Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. And Lonesome Dove is a Western, actually. Uh, It's set in the Western U.S. as it was developing, and so is Angle of Repose. It's an oldie, but it's a goodie. It won the 1972 Pulitzer Prize. And it tells the story of four generations of a family living in the American West. 
The main character is a retired historian, Lyman Ward. He's confined to a wheelchair, but he decides to research and write the story of his grandparents. So he finds his grandmother's journals and he writes her story. So his grandmother was an artist in New York. And after she marries Lyman's grandfather, she follows him out west into the American frontier he is a mining engineer, thinking that they will return back to New York, but they never do. So his his grandfather, like I said, was a mining engineer, and he took them across the West, including to like where the gold rush was in California, Leadville and Idaho. And so this book focuses on his, his grandmother's story of perseverance, living in frontier conditions when what she really wanted was a life of art and sophistication. So I thought that this might be, you know, it's not a read alike like Lonesome Dove, but it happens out west, a big sweeping family saga uh, that I hope that you will enjoy. I actually have like a list of books I think that would fit for this reader. I'm going to send them to her privately because <laughs> we don't have enough time on this podcast to do it. Are you feeling like buzzed? Do you, do you have like energy and you feel a little yes. bit like drunk with power? I do. I the love doing that. Scene. Other listeners, send me a, a puzzle to solve for you. I would really love it. You'd be doing me a favor. It's a project. Right. It's a project. I need Contribute. a project. Amy does need a project. So that's all until next time. Happy reading. You can find Marty at his website, martyolhot.com. And his last name is spelled O-H-L-H-A-U-T. And you can find Grace on Instagram at grace.ly underscore author. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. To send us a message, go to our website and click the contact button. If you have the adventurous spirit and you enjoy listening to us each week, tell a friend or write us a review on your favorite podcast platform to help other book lovers find us. And finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.